Hello everyone, this is Maz. If you're hearing this message, it means you're not part of the Voices of War subscriber community and will only hear the first half of the episode. If that's enough, then I'm thrilled. However, if you're looking to dive deeper into the complexities of war, please consider subscribing to our private feed by using the link at the top of the show notes. By doing so, you'll gain access to all of our episodes, the ability to ask follow-up questions, and we'll become part of an exclusive community that makes this show possible. I hope you'll make the decision to join us today. They came as clients of the greatest imperial power of the age, which had implanted white European settler colonies all over the world. Australia, New Zealand, Canada, the United States, Kenya, South Africa. I quote Herzl somewhere in in the first part of the book as saying, you know, we'll be a rampart of Western civilization against the East. That's, they, that's still how they see themselves. I, I don't know if it was Rabin or a more recent Israeli leader who said, you know, we're a villa in a jungle. We're a Western implantation. We are one of you. We're Europeans like you, really. And these people are savages. It's a jungle. The Nakba is not a one-off. The Nakba is part of a process of changing the topography, changing the situation on the ground, changing the population, and it continues to this day. This is a regime that depends on force and violence, and which is completely at odds with any form of liberal values. I mean, you have five million people basically imprisoned without rights in the occupied territories. One trend that is, is definitely worth paying attention to is a shift among younger people in the West certainly in the United States and in some countries of Europe. Hello everyone, this is Maz. In light of the recent surge of violence in Israel and the occupied Palestinian territories, it's crucial to provide some context for today's episode. I sat down with Professor Rashid Halidi on the 29th of October, just a week before the latest harrowing escalation. This episode is not designed to pass judgment on any individual actors, but to illuminate the underlying motivations and root causes behind the ongoing human tragedy we're witnessing. The events unfolding at the moment are deeply rooted in a conflict that spans more than a century. While my conversation with Professor Halidi undoubtedly carries its own biases, it aims to inject nuance into a narrative often simplified into a binary of right and wrong by mainstream media. Therefore, I invite you to listen with an open mind as we delve into the complexities that shape this tragic and enduring conflict. Okay. Now let's get to my conversation with Professor Rashid Halidi. My guest today is Professor Rashid Halidi, who is the Edward Said Professor of Modern Arab Studies at Columbia University and co-editor of the Journal of Palestine Studies. Professor Halidi has dedicated his career to shedding light on the complexities of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, challenging conventional narratives through his extensive scholarship. He's the author of several groundbreaking books on the Middle East broadly and Palestine specifically, including The Hundred Years' War on Palestine, A History of Settler Colonialism and Resistance, which I just finished yesterday. The book offers a nuanced and important counter-narrative that places Palestinian voices and experiences at the centre of the ongoing struggle. His work has been instrumental in broadening our understanding of the conflict, examining it through lenses such as settler colonialism, international involvement, as well as through its ethical dimensions. 
Given his unique background, it's a true honor to host him on the show. Rashid, thank you very much for joining me on The Voices of War. Thanks so much for having me. So after reading The Hundred Years' War on Palestine, it's very clear to me that you bring a unique and authoritative perspective to the subject. But could you share with the audience a bit about your and your family's background that positions you as a credible voice on the Palestinian struggle? Yeah, it's it's rather sad that uh, my book should be, uh, as you describe it, unique. Um, this is a two-sided struggle, and uh, the other side of it has had its voice amplified and uh, is 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 multitudinous and multifarious and available universally. Whereas I think, as you say, the 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 kinds of thing, the kind of perspective that I have had on this on this struggle. Um, is very rarely uh, heard or seen. So uh, I, I'm glad that I'm glad that it's out there. Um, my family uh, is originally from Jerusalem. Uh, I was born in the United States because my my father couldn't go back after 1948 to Palestine, like many hundreds of thousands of Palestinians who were driven out or could not return. Um, I've lived in different parts of the Arab world uh, and for a very long time also in the United States, which is where I was born. Um, so, and I've, I've been an academic for, I've been teaching uh, for almost 50 years now uh, on the Middle East. And as you say, I've written a great deal about various uh, topics in Middle East history, in particular uh, relating to Palestine. And, and even your father and your grandfather, I believe, uh, who you talk about quite frequently in the book, uh, have been very, very intimately involved in the struggle. Can you talk about I mean, that a little bit? Right. Many members of my family have. Uh, I talk uh, about my father who worked at the United Nations in what was then called Political and Security Council Affairs, where he was one of many uh, individuals in the secretariat of the United Nations who dealt uh, with Palestine and other Arab-Israeli issues. Um, I talk about my grandfather, how he, how he and my grandmother were forced to leave uh, their home near Jaffa uh, after 1948. And I talk about other members of the family, um, going back to my one of my uncles, actually a couple of my uncles, several of my aunts, and and earlier ancestors who, in different ways, were involved. Sometimes as spectators, sometimes as uh, 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 people forced to leave their homes, and sometimes as political actors. My uncle was yeah. very involved in the politics of the Mandate period in the in the 30s and the 40s. Um, one of my great, great, great uncles and, and others were, were involved in the politics of the late Ottoman era. I start the book with a letter um, that one of, one of my ancestors wrote to Theodore Herzl, the, the, really the founder of modern political Zionism. So yeah, yeah. I, I draw on my family and actually other families, my wife's family, other families, uh, archives, papers, memoirs, uh, things that I've, I've I, uh, interviews that I've, that I've done with people. Uh, to make this a book which is not just historical and not just doesn't just put forward an analysis, but also tries to to do that through the lived experience uh, of yeah. a variety of people, including myself and members of my family. Mm. Yeah, and that really comes through the book, the personal nature of it. Uh, and I was actually going to ask you about that, whether that was uh, intentional, uh, because I've heard you talk about elsewhere and, and, and your other books uh, I've heard you mention are, are very academic. This one... Right. There is definitely a sense of personal understanding of the issue and true connection to it that I feel gives the book a face and it gives it roots and it gives it identity. And, and you see the person that's behind the book uh, who's writing in a very authoritative manner. In other words, it is still a very well-referenced and 
dare I say, academic book, but it's definitely accessible to the lay audience. Was that part of the intention? That was precisely my intention, in fact, yes. Um, I hope it is well-researched. It has 45 pages of footnotes. <laughs> yeah. For anyone who wants to dig into why I say this is what happened in Sabra and Shatila in September of 1982, there are the references. You can yeah. check them out. Yeah. For anyone who wants to see why I say this is what happened in the Security Council, what I saw in the Security Council in, in uh, June of 1967, I give you the the United Nations records, uh, references to them. At the same time, um, this is an entirely different book than anything I ever wrote before. Uh, I never uh, uh, included personal references, or very, very rarely, and if so, only in the, the odd footnote. Mm. Um, I wrote in an academic style that I was trained to use, uh, in every other book, including a couple of books that were written for trade publishers. But uh, the style and the approach was very academic. Mm. Um, my son and other members of the family, and, and then later on my, my agent and my editor, very strongly urged me to do something completely different in this book. To include, and my son, my son kept saying, don't just tell us the boring history. You've done that many times. Don't just write for other academics. Uh, Tell the kinds of stories you, we we know that you that that you experienced, the things that you saw, the things that you heard, the things that you tell us about from your the sources that are personal. Um, and so I tried to do this, and I, I have to thank you know my editor, my agent, but especially my 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 son, Smaid, yeah. um, and one of my cousins, uh, all of whom strongly pushed me pushed me to do something that was very uncomfortable for me, and it was very different than anything I had ever done, mm. certainly in a book. Well, I think it also makes sense that they pushed you to do it, uh, perhaps a different generation ex uh, accessing information differently, uh, but also personalizes the struggle and takes it out of the academic domain, which I think is part of the argument you're making, that, you know, right. let's call it the other side, uh, as much as I hate to use the terminology and dichotomy of us and them, but the other side has personalized their struggle uh, not least through the Holocaust anyway. Uh, but I think that kind of has echoed uh, through the ages since. Uh, perhaps this is a small step in personalizing the Palestinian struggle, uh, or dare I say, the other side. Right. I mean, I, I think we're in a new era with a new generation. I think you're right. And I notice there has been a plethora, there's a huge explosion of books uh, from a Palestinian perspective. In less only very, very few years. Um, in books like the books of Rajesh Hadi, where he where he talks about his own experience walking in, in, in Palestine under occupation, where he's just written a book, which I think is up for a major prize, um, where he talks about his relationship to his father, who was a lawyer dealing with the occupation. And so these are, Rajesh, for example, Rajesh Hadi has written books on occupation law. He's a lawyer. Yeah. Uh, as academic as you can get as dry and to be to be fair to him or I, 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 this is perhaps unfair to him uh rather dry and boring mm. uh but in these books and in many other things that are coming out um so i had the amity's books about her experiences under occupation there are many other personal memoirs there is a lot more poetry and novels and plays and films which personalize things um, this is an attempt to write a history which is also personal. So it's different, but it comes as part of, I think, a very new um, wave of accounts which give access, I think, for the first time to the Palestinian side of the story, which is not only untold, 
but is unfairly told mm. in much of what's what's available. Yeah, and perhaps we can circle back on that uh, perhaps optimistic note uh, towards the end. Uh, but I really want to uh, open up proper about the book and and then uh, uh, take us into the subject, uh, mm-hmm. looking at the book structure, because I think the book structure or the, or the chapters, the chapter titles, tell a story themselves. And I and 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 I feel like you're trying to tell a or set the context uh, through not only a title but then the chapters. Can you give us a brief overview? of your intent behind the chapter titles uh, and perhaps right. what the, the, the chapter titles uh, are and what they mean. Right. Well, I mean, what I intended to do with this book is to demolish what I think is an entirely false framing of this as either a conflict between unreasoning, irrational, anti-Semitic Arabs and poor innocent Jews who simply are trying to find a refuge from persecution. A land of uh, no people for people with no land, right? Exactly. And uh, arguing that there's no people in Palestine and this is a people without a land and that they deserve it um, for various reasons. Another version of this is, yes, well, you have two peoples struggling over the same land, uh, right versus right. Um, and it's like Germany and France, you know, you have the French in your, and you. So it's a, it's a conflict between two equals. Well, they're not equals. And this is not a terra nullius where yeah. uh, this is not a land without a people. Yeah. Um, perhaps you could argue that the Jews were a people without a land, but Palestine was certainly not a land without a people. Mm. And uh, finally, uh, there is a specific context for this. Jews don't just come to Palestine, which they do. And they don't just have a national movement, which is Zionism. They come in the context of British imperialism as a colonial settler project, protected by the greatest imperial power of the age, which is there to expand and support uh, and help to establish a a Jewish national home in a country almost entirely inhabited by Arabs. And in order to do that, the British Empire ends up uh, uh, deploying uh, its vast military power to crush the Palestinians when they rise up against an attempt to transform Palestine into the land of Israel, which is the words of Herzl. Yeah. Uh, sorry, which are the words, excuse me, of Vladimir Jabotinsky, an early Zionist leader. He said the objective is to transform Palestine, quote unquote, into the land of Israel. And that's what the British helped to do. If you ignore that context and you just see poor, oppressed, persecuted Jews coming to an empty land, you, it, you're talking in, in, in falsehood after falsehood after falsehood. Yeah. Uh, the only correct part of that is persecuted Jews. That that part is correct. The rest is false. Um, they came as clients of the greatest imperial power of the age, which had implanted white European settler colonies all over the world. Australia, New Zealand, yeah. Canada, the United States, Kenya, South Africa. Uh, and obviously the Zionist project had its own independent nature. It was a national project, but it came in as a client of the British Empire, was supported by the British Empire, would not have succeeded without the support in the first decades of the British Empire, and most importantly, was and saw itself as a European project. Uh, At the same time as as Zionists understood themselves as uh, 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 redeeming or or returning to their ancient land, they saw themselves as Europeans, and they were Europeans. They talked about themselves as settlers. They talked about this as colonization. They, they made no bones about it. Much later, all of this was airbrushed out. Uh, Israel became an anti-colonial project because there was a period when 
uh, the Zionist Project and the British Fell Act. Um, so I, I'm trying in the structure that you, I, I'll get into in a second to demolish this idea, uh, all of these ideas, mm. which I think are entirely false framings. And what I talk about is a, a whole series of, of what I describe as declarations of war on the Palestinians. This is not a conflict between Jews and Arabs. In the beginning, it's a conflict between the British and the Palestinians. And the declaration of war is made by Britain on behalf of the Zionist movement, but it's in its own imperial interests. So the first declaration of war is the Balfour Declaration, uh, which promises a Jewish national home in a country inhabited by Arabs who are never mentioned, either in the Balfour Declaration or in the League of Nations mandate that follows, and that includes the Balfour Declaration in its terms. I, I describe other declarations of war. A second would be the Partition Resolution, in which the United Nations violated its own charter, which called for self-determination by giving most of Palestine to a, to a minority, hmm. um, and then doing nothing about that minority strangling the Arab state that was all, also supposed to be created in a less than half of Palestine uh, in its cradle. Uh, the third declaration of war is what happens around the 1967 war. Both Americans support for Israel's preemptive war on the Arab states and Israel's occupation, um, and Security Council Resolution 242, which is an American devised resolution. Uh, which entirely excludes the Palestinians from any prospect of a settlement. And I go through uh, three other declarations of war. Yeah. I, I talk about the 1982 war um, when I was living in Beirut, and I describe it in the context of my experiences. And each of these chapters, I talk about through the experiences of someone either from my family or from other families who were involved yeah. um, in, 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 in the events that I describe. Yeah. And 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 I guess the, the fifth and the sixth will probably get to... Uh, towards the end because arguably the fifth and the sixth are still ongoing uh and uh and certainly not precise yeah so so we'll get to that precise. in a second but i do uh, one thing that i that this that's bugged me as i read your book and that that's bugged me since delving uh, uh ever so superficially i must admit uh over my uh, throughout my education into the struggle of the palestinians is why the british in initially in the first stages even before the Balfour Declaration, and then of course post, what motivated the British to support the Zionist project? Where did that drive come from? Well, I, 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 there are multiple, there are multiple motivations for the British. Um, one of them is uh, British Protestant uh, Zionism, right? The idea that starts with Lord Shaftesbury in the early nineteenth century and becomes widespread uh, in the middle of a of a, of a Protestant revival in England mm. in the early nineteenth century. Um, that it is, a, it is a task of Christians to redeem the land of Israel and to return the Jews. Um, and this is something that, you know, uh, how shall I put it? Uh, it is a motivation there. Uh, uh, we see it today in evangelicals uh, who have exactly the same motivation. And that's quite strong, right? In, in the U.S., that's right. really strong. Very, yeah. very strong motivation. Um, the idea being for some people that the return of the Jews uh, to, 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 to Palestine will hasten the coming of the Messiah um, and, the, and the end of days and a bunch of other ideas that are linked to the revelation of St. John the Divine in the last book of the, of the New Testament. Um, so that's one motivation. Another motivation, it has to be said, is anti-Semitism. So you have Philo-Semitism yeah. and Christian Zionism on the one hand, and you have anti-Semitism. So the same man who issues the Balfour Declaration is the prime minister under whom the Alien Exclusion Act of 1905 is passed in, by the British Parliament, keeping destitute Jewish refugees from czarist persecution from coming to England. 
we don't want them here. However, we're happy to send them to Palestine. Right. Uh, Twelve years later, Balfour says in his letter uh, to Chaim Weizmann and to the to well actually to, to Lord Rothschild, uh, uh, directed to the Zionists, but which is the Balfour Declaration. Yeah. Balfour Declaration, a letter on behalf of the British pop, uh, cabinet, uh, sent by Balfour. Um, so that's the second motivation. I would argue the most important motivation was not sentimental or religious or anti-Semitic. These are these are factors certainly. The most important was strategic. Um, the British. Uh, in the years before World War One, were increasingly concerned about the defense of Egypt, about the vulnerability of Egypt from the east. Were increasingly concerned about the route to India, which went by the Suez Canal through India. Uh, sorry, through Egypt, uh, and which also included the shortest land route between the Mediterranean and the Gulf. Yeah. And through through Palestine, through securing control of Palestine, they hoped to uh, achieve both of these strate strategic objectives: protect Egypt from the east and secure the Mediterranean terminus of the shortest land route uh, between the Gulf uh, and the Mediterranean. Mm. Um, at the time, before World War I, the idea was for a railway. Later on, it, that became the route for a pipeline, a series of air bases, and a road, which provided the shortest land route between the oil fields of Iraq uh, and the refinery in Haifa for a series of RAF bases across uh, uh, the desert. And for a road. Mm. Uh, so what the British wanted before World War One and achieved through their support of Zionism uh, later actually worked out for them in the interwar years. Uh, so th that was the main motivation. I mean, anybody who thinks that the British Empire was motivated by sentiment or religion is missing a large part of the picture. Mm. Well, values are really, uh, really the motivator, <laughs> right? Uh, national interest. And I, and I guess I, I want to get to that. And I actually do have a question about this, this kind of idea of national interests, uh, because I think we, uh, I'm certainly under no illusion. It's something I discuss on the podcast a lot, this kind of competing tension between interests versus values. You know, we go to wars uh, under the auspice of some values, spreading democracy, uh, you know, improving people's lives. But uh the more one scratches below that, the more one realizes that there are genuine strategic national security interests uh, that are being pursued. Uh, and I guess that's, uh, could the same be said then also about the US and it, the US support for Zionism? In the United States case, you have some of the same motivations. In other words, you had a very large evangelical uh, and, and Protestant concern for the return, so-called, of the Jews to, to, to Palestine. Uh, you had an anti-Semitic motivation at the height of the Holocaust. And in the years when Jews were being persecuted before that in Germany, there was an absolute refusal on, on grounds of rank anti-Semitism to change American immigration law and allow more Jews to enter the United States. The United States was perfectly happy after World War II to send 100,000 displaced persons who were survivors of the Holocaust living in miserable conditions in displaced persons camps in Europe to Palestine, but were not under any circumstances willing to change the racist American immigration laws that kept people from those countries from entering the United States from the mid-1920s up until those laws were changed in the 1960s. So you have some of the same motivations, i.e. Uh, uh, philo-Semitism and, 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 and evangelical uh, uh, Zionism, Christian Zionism. Uh, but you also have a couple of other factors. Uh, one of them is electoral factors, uh, in particular for the Democratic Party in the 1940s, where you had big city machines uh, in places where you had large uh, Jewish communities 
among whom Zionism was spreading in the post-World War II era, especially after the horrible revelations of the Holocaust. Um, this was a consideration for President Truman. Uh, I quote him as yeah. saying something to a group of American diplomats who come to him and say, you have to have a, a more equal, more balanced, more even-handed policy on Palestine. He says, gentlemen, I don't have any Arab constituents. Yeah. I have a lot of constituents who are very concerned uh, for the fate of Zionism. So that's a second consideration, and it's a consideration to this day. I mean, it's almost impossible to determine why President Biden is so obsessed with achieving an Israeli Saudi normalization, except electoral reasons. Right. Almost, I mean, there's some strategic benefit to the United States, undoubtedly. And that brings me to the last and probably the most important, which is a strategic um, uh, uh, motivation of uh, the United States, especially uh, very soon uh, uh, into the first war, Arab-Israeli war, the 1948 war, came to see Israel as a potential strategic asset in the Middle East. Um, whatever the original motivations for support for Zionism were, very quickly strategic strategic uh, considerations uh, came to the fore. Mm. That was true to a very, to a certain extent in the 50s. In the 1960s, it grew. During the Cold War, Israel became seen as a vital ally uh, a vital client, if you want, against Soviet clients in the Arab world, mm. countries like Egypt and Syria. Mm. Um, and that's a strategic motivation that lasts for quite a while. Um, and then you have the war on terror, when Israeli leaders managed to sell the Americans on the idea that Al-Qaeda and Hamas are the same thing, mm. which is an insane, ludicrous, foolish idea that only people who know nothing about history or who are intent on selling you know their own country's interests to the United States would believe. Perhaps we can we can uh, just unpack that a little bit because yeah. there might be some in the audience who might question why that is the case, why they are different, uh, and why uh, why we shouldn't uh, conflate well, the two. Very simply, Al Qaeda or the Islamic State are transnational uh, terrorist organizations, which um, who, who use a method of attacks on civilians, but whose objectives and whose nature is entirely different from a movement like Hamas or Hezbollah, which has a territorial base and has clear territorial objectives. In the case of Hezbollah, it was to remove Israeli occupation from Lebanon from 1982 until 2006, when the Israeli army finally left Lebanon. Uh, in the case of Hamas, it's to end Israeli occupation. It's completely different than this transnational Islamic ideology. Uh, some of the methods are similar, uh, attacks on civilians. But again, the term, the very term terrorism is a very loaded term. Why are attacks on civilians, which are, if they're disproportional and they and they're, don't meet other conditions, carried out by an organization like Hamas or others, terrorism and massive, infinitely ma more massive casualties inflicted on civilians um, by the United States or by Russia or, or by Israel, um, those are... Not, not so certainly not terrorism, heaven forbid. Uh, they're certainly not war crimes, heaven forbid. Whereas uh, any any similar attack on civilians is 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 described as terrorism, and the organizations that carry them out are terrorists. Mm. Um, I mean, if what's sauce for the goose should be sauce for the gander. Mm. There are various rules in in the laws of war, and there are various rules in terms of what is a war crime. Um, but. <laughs> uh, if you only look at the volume, the numbers, um, Israel has killed infinitely more innocent civilians than Hamas and Hezbollah ever did yeah. uh, on the Israeli side. And yet, we use that terminology only for them. So I'm making a distinction between types of organizations that use uh, what I would agree is terrorism, let's say attacks on civilians, 
um, which states also do, but never, get, but o- almost always get away. With it. Now, of course, Russia is, is pilloried as a terrorist state because uh, Russia is, is doing it uh, against the wishes of the United States. When the United States does it, of course, it's mm. it's, it's kosher. I think uh, to to put it bluntly, outside the West, uh, the the defense mechanism that's uh, invoked here is that in, the intention matters. Right, so the doctrine of double effect. You know, just because I've killed civilians doesn't mean I intended to, uh, and that it's also justified if I've killed the bad guys. And how we define right. the bad guys, it's uh, <laughs> uh, it's very much up to us, uh, and therefore how we define I, the good I, guys. I, yeah. I would also talk about things like proportionality. Yeah. I mean, if you say that there is a terrorist, quote unquote, somebody who's carried out masterminded an attack on civilians in a building, and you kill 80, 30, or twenty civilians. There's a question of proportionality. Absolutely, yeah. Um, you know, uh, using a drone to kill somebody in a car who is, is is supposedly responsible for some terrorist act is one thing, but bombarding Gaza with 155 and 175 millimeter artillery and 2,000 pound bombs in a territory where people have no way to escape and killing as Israel has done in various attacks on Gaza. This is the sixth uh, uh, declaration of war, sixth mm. chapter. Um, you can talk about how innocent the intention is until the cows come home, but you've killed 2,000 civilians yeah. or 1,400 civilians. Yeah. That simply will not wash. Just the, the eye test, it doesn't meet the eye test, let alone any legal test. Yeah. There is, there is a, in the doctrine, of, of, in the laws of war, there's a, there is a measure which is called proportionality. Yeah. Yeah. You kill 50 people to kill one person. Unfortunately, that is a war crime. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, uh, but you, you certainly have an ally in that view uh, here, uh, and something I argue on the on this very show uh, quite often: uh, our mis- misunderstanding of the costs of war and how we carry out war. Uh, but perhaps, mm-hmm. like, uh, uh, since we're talking about the U.S., uh, perhaps I want to just stay on that for a little bit longer because I think, and, and it's something that I, I was not aware until I read your book, was the or my, my impression of. 1967 war, the Six Day War, the 1982 war was, well, you know, the US stood back uh, and I guess allowed it to happen uh, because it was seen as uh, Israel suppressing credible threat to its existence, which is part of the narrative, right? That 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 Israel is constantly. Well, there was no so, pretext in 1982. That was the pretext in 1967. Mm, certainly. Sorry, it, I, in my head, I was thinking 67, and I and I and I conflated too. So, so perhaps maybe let's talk about 67 first, uh, and then we'll mm-hmm. talk about uh, 82, just to separate them, because uh, right. th- there is a common thread in the U.S. support and endorsement, uh, but perhaps the the circumstances are vastly different. So, so can you tell us a little bit about 1967 war, the context surrounding right. that war, and how that even happened? Let me talk about one other common thread before I talk about 67 specifically. And this is a common thread between the 67 war, the 1973 so-called October War or so-called Yom Kippur War, mm. and the 1982 war. And that common thread was Israel was acting as an ally of the United States against allies of the Soviet Union. Mm. So it was seen as doing America's bidding and, and serving its own interest. Uh, in attacking the PLO in Lebanon in 1982, in fighting the Egyptian and Syrian armies in 1973 when they attacked uh, uh, during the October War, and in attacking uh, Syria and Egypt in particular uh, in 1967. So that's a common thread. And that's the reason, the basic reason for American support in all three instances. Mm. Uh, It had to do with political domestic factors. It had to do with sentimental uh, connections with Israel. All of that is, of course, true, but entirely secondary. 
what drives President Johnson, uh, what drives President Nixon and Secretary Kissinger, what drives uh, 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 Secretary of State Haig uh, and President Reagan in 1982 are Cold War, anti-Soviet uh, 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 motivations. Mm -hmm. We will support an American ally that is our proxy against Soviet proxies. That's what's driving all three of those wars. And that's why the United States is not simply standing on the side. Uh, in fact, it is a it is an active participant in all of these three wars. Uh, and to talk specifically about 1967, uh, there are three factors that everybody ignores. The first is the United States gave Israel a green light. Mm. The head of the Mossad comes to Washington, talks to the president, talks to the secretary of state, talks to the secretary of defense and gets a green light. We have this in the documents. Americans have obfuscated it. Israelis had no reason to obfuscate it. So you get it more clearly in the Israeli versions of these meetings than you do in the American. But that is what happened. The United States gives Israel a green light. The second thing that happens, the, the, second, the second important factor, I should say, is that both the president and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the Secretary of Defense made it very clear to the Israelis that under no circumstances did they have any chance of losing this war. If the Arabs attacked first, they would whip them. If they attacked first, they would annihilate them. Then it would be, take a little longer, it would be a little more costly, but they also said, and the Arabs aren't going to attack. And they weren't, we now know. Mm. Um, so Israel's, uh, Israelis were afraid. I mean, it must be admitted, Israelis were afraid. And there was a, an existential element to this fear. Uh, this is only, uh, uh, what, 22 years after the end of World War II, 22 years uh, after the Holocaust. Um, and the idea that Israel could be in danger and that Israel could even be facing annihilation was something that seized the Israeli public, seized the American Jewish community, mm. affected many Americans. However, that had nothing to do with reality. The reality was Israel was so superior under any circumstance that it was going to annihilate the Arab armies mm. if they attacked first or if Israel preempted them. Of course, Israel was champing at the bit to carry out a war plan that the Israeli military had set up years and years before to do what they did, which is to wipe out the Arab air forces in the first strike, and then uh, uh, in, a, in a situation where air power dominates these desert and, and, and arid regions, to roll right over uh, whatever op opposition they had, because they had complete control of the air could it be, uh, once the Arab forces had been destroyed. Could it be said in the thinking of Israelis at the time that that's a fair assumption to use that opportunity from 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 in their interest to use that opportunity and the especially the Egyptian uh, kind of build up military build up to use that narrative to further their aims as in well, as in is it understandable it depends on what Israelis you're talking about I mean uh, uh, there's a there's a great book by Tom Segev about the about 1967 in which he talks about the Israeli public and Israeli politicians I think they I think I don't think he should, makes it very clear as do other authors that Israelis were genuinely afraid, and that many Israeli politicians, who were not military experts, didn't know what the military knew. But the military knew, and was just champing at the bit to, I mean, there was a possibility, some authors have said, this went to the point of the military being willing to, to, to force the politicians. Mm. Yoram Perry has a book. On, on the Israeli military, in which he says, on, on, on the eve of the 67 war, the military was telling you, you have to let us go to war. Not because they thought Israel would be annihilated, because they saw this as a golden opportunity to carry out their long prepared plans and to just knock the Arab armies 
uh, out of out of out of the conflict, which they did. Yeah. It took them a few days. Yeah. It took them actually a couple of days yeah. um, with the Egyptian army. It took them three or four days, five days with the Syrian, with the Jordanian and the Syrian guards. Mm-hmm. Okay, and what is the impact of that victory? The, la- so, the last yeah. thing. I yes, say, yes, please. The other thing that has to be kept in mind is not only did the United States give Israel a green light to go ahead. And not only did the Americans make it clear to them that they understood that they would win anyway. The third thing that the United States did was to extend massive diplomatic support to Israel at the United Nations, running interference for the Israelis so that they could continue to advance in the last two or three days of the war. Yeah. Uh, I witnessed that in the Security Council. I described my own experience as in, from the visitor's gallery as a, as a, as a first-year college student. With my father down in the chamber behind the, the undersecretary uh, uh, as part of his job, um, and I and I go into the I go into the debates in the Security Council. I I I, I cite the various UN documents, and that support continues right through Security Council Resolution Two Four Two of November twenty second, nineteen sixty seven, where the United States sets out parameters for peace that are basically the Israeli desiderat. Yeah. And so we are not talking about the United States standing on the sidelines. We're talking about the United States giving a green light, reassuring the Israelis, deceiving the Arabs, and then running interference for Israel from that point on. And something which is something that they have continued to do in the United Nations up till the present moment. Yeah. Yeah. Very few exceptions. And that perhaps takes us through 1973 to 1982. So, so if, you, if, if, if you're happy, perhaps continue that narrative because, again, there's, right. there's a real thread through that. Well, we had in, in Ariel Sharon, who at that stage, by 1982, was the Israeli defense minister. He later becomes prime minister. Um, we have in Ariel Sharon someone who is a very shrewd reader of American political discourse. Mm. And who understood perfectly who he was talking to in President Reagan and in Casper uh, Weinberger, and especially in Secretary Haig. He was talking to people whom he could basically say, the Russians, and they would jump on a bed and start screaming, like mice under a bed. They saw Soviets under the bed everywhere. Uh, This, by the way, is a period when the Soviet Union is in in steep decline economically. This is in a period when Soviet influence is beginning to decline in the third world. But these people were still obsessed with the Soviet Union. And so he sold them in his visit to Washington, just as as the head of of the Israeli intelligence, external intelligence service comes to Washington in 67. So does Haig come to Washington in 1982, um, a few weeks before the war starts. And he tells Secretary Haig, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to knock Syria out of Lebanon. I'm going to help create a Lebanese puppet state. I'm going to expel the PLO from Lebanon. Uh, And I'm going to reduce Soviet influence in the region. And Haig signs on. And in the notes of of Haig's, one of Haig's chief aides, we have green light for for the Israeli invasion. So the United States was privy to what Israel wanted to do and signed on to what Israel wanted to do and continued to supply weapons for an offensive war, which in principle were in violation of American law, whereby American weapons are only supposed to be used for defensive purposes. There's nothing defensive about a a, a multi-month invasion of Lebanon, which ended up with the siege of Beirut and the death of 17,000 Lebanese and Palestinians. There's nothing defensive. Um, most of whom, of course, were civilians. Well, I think it was uh, 
correct me if I'm wrong, 1967 war onwards was the first time we introduced this terminology preemptive strike, which we've then seen subsequently used, of course, uh, in other parts, but uh, most prominently from the West, uh, 2003 invasion of Iraq. Uh, so that's right. so, so 1967, and, and, and even through my own education uh, in, the, in the Australian military, 1967 war has been talked about as uh, the kind of the the a changing in how wars are conducted. Firstly, from this preemptive strike justification, right, but also from targeting really targeting the center of gravity or using the center of gravity construct where you're annihilating the absolute key components of a, of an opponent to defeat you know uh, an x amount of, of of the hardware but you therefore defeat their ability uh, to fight yeah. a war so, so there's a there's a there's a link and a continuation of uh, of this uh, of this thinking uh, of this kind of idea of pre- preemptive strike let me say two things about one about 67 and one yeah. about 82 in 67 the arab states provided a wonderful pretext for israel to do what it did i mean for reasons that i go into in the book uh, uh, Egypt reluctantly mobilized, but it did so in a way that uh, 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 provided a credible threat to Israel. Mm. Uh, the Israelis didn't make up the fact that the Egyptian army had moved into Sinai. They didn't make up the fact that Israel removed the United Nations emergency forces mm. from Sharm el Sheikh mm. and from the border. Mm. Um, and that was a casus belli as far as the Israelis were concerned. Now, we know now that even though some of Egypt's generals were chafing to go to war, Abdel Nasser wasn't going to let them. We know now uh, that the Syrians had no limited capabilities to do anything offensive. And, 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 and there was almost no coordination between them. We know now, and the American, I mean, we have the American military and, and intelligence assessments of 1967. They knew this. They knew these things. Mm. Um, and the Israelis knew them as well. Israeli intelligence was at least as good as American intelligence on these subjects. Mm. Uh, military intelligence. Certainly for the and, region. And, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so the, the Arab states, in particular Egypt, provided a pretext. And the rhetoric that came out in the Arab world was extraordinarily threatening, which is why Israelis were genuinely frightened. They listened to what Saut al-Arab, the voice of the Arabs, and Radio Cairo, and so on, were saying. And they saw what the Egyptian army was doing. And it looked certainly looked extremely threatening. Okay. Now, the military assessment was, this military cannot defeat our military. That was what the Israelis knew, and that's what the Americans told them. Uh, as far as 82 is concerned, um, one of the sad ironies of 1982 is that even though Israel did or tried to do exactly what you said, which is to take out the center of gravity of the PLO, to knock the Syrians out of Lebanon, uh, uh, to to uh, create a puppet government. I mean, the, the elections that brought Bashir Ismail to the presidency took place in conditions of Israeli military occupation of large parts of Beirut, and with some deputies being brought to the parliament, willingly or unwillingly, in Israeli armored vehicles. Mm. So, you know, Israel succeeded in the objectives that that uh, that uh, Sharon uh, laid out for Secretary Haig. Um, but ironically, in defeating the PLO, they created a much more fearsome uh, uh, foe which was Hezbollah and the Lebanese resistance against the Israeli occupation, which went on from 1982 until uh, 2006. Uh, and Israel still uh, has has serious problems with Hezbollah, which is a much, much, much more formidable opponent uh, than the PLO ever. So the irony is in not trying to knock out um, these forces. The Syrians, by the way, hung on in the mountains. 
and continued to play an enormously influential role in Israeli and sorry in Lebanese politics in spite of what the Israeli they defeated the Syrian army in the Bekaa but they could not get them out of the the mountain range the top of the of the of the Mount Lebanon range uh, and that meant that they never were able to exclude their influence from Lebanese yeah. politics. So actually, in that respect, they, they failed. Yeah. Having succeeded as far as the PLO and creating a, a government favorable to them, which in fact signed a peace treaty, which was never ratified by the Lebanese. Many might say echoes of uh, of uh, Western uh, adventures in Afghanistan, uh, which is... Uh, or Iraq. Or Iraq, yeah, that's, that's right. Uh, there's one thing that uh, I, I don't want to miss, and that is the... Perhaps clever game uh, and strategic thinking by Israeli leaders, certainly post World War II, uh, as as the Cold War really shaped up. Because, and you talk about right. this in the book, uh, they had support from the USSR, of course Russia uh, primarily, uh, post uh, the war, and post, I guess, Israel becoming officially uh, recognized as, as a state. And 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 they were, I guess, harnessing the power and support of of, of the both major uh, players. Can you talk about that a little bit? And then, of course, how the shift occurs where uh, USSR falls off uh, the map right. and US becomes the primary client state. Right. I mean, there's some very interesting maneuvering by the superpowers and the great powers around the Palestine question, uh, starting in World War II. Um, the British, in the lead up to World War II. Uh, in the wake of their crushing this major Palestinian revolt that takes place from 1936 to 1939, offer some concessions to the Palestinians and severely limit um, their commitments to the Zionists. And the Zionist movement is outraged because the British had promised in their understanding to help them create a Jewish state. The Balfour Declaration only said a national home for the Jewish people, but Prime Minister Lloyd George, Foreign Secretary Balfour, Churchill, who was Secretary of State for War, uh, told Chaim Weizmann, the head of the Zionist movement, what we meant is a Jewish state. And that's what we intend. We let you get a majority in the country and it becomes a Jewish state. That's what we meant. That's what we meant when we used this ambiguous, deceitful, typically British term, national home for the Jewish people. We meant a Jewish state. And by the 1939 White Paper, as a result of the, of the, of the Arab revolt, as a result of revulsion throughout the Arab world at what Britain had done in Palestine to crush this revolt, as a result of the understanding, oh my God, we're going to have to fight World War II, among other places in the Middle East, and these people hate us. Mm. The British made concessions to the Arabs and limited their commitments to the Zionists. At that point, the Zionist movement pivots to the United States and to the Soviet Union. And over time, through brilliant diplomacy, through playing on the jealousies and the rivalries between the great powers, um, managed to get garner the support of both the United States and the Soviet Union for the partition of Palestine and handing over most of it to what was then a Jewish minority of the population through the partition resolution of November 29th, 1947. Now, this is not just the genius of the diplomacy of Chaim Weizmann and, and David Ben-Gurion, who are the two main leaders of the Zionist movement at this time. This has to do with great power rivalry. The United States is seeking to supplant Britain in the Middle East. The Soviets are always, Stalin in particular, obsessed with the British and getting them out of the Middle East. And so the United States and the Soviet Union, which are moving into the Cold War, actually are in alignment on this. They both support partition. The British do not vote in favor of partition in 1947. Hi there. Thank you for listening to this enlightening discussion with Professor Rashid Halidi. 
We've already delved into some critical aspects of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, but you won't want to miss what's coming up in the second half of the episode. We'll be exploring the ethical dimension of the ongoing conflict, its geopolitical dimensions, and potential shifts in global public opinion. To hear the full episode, make sure you subscribe to the Voices of War using the link at the top of the show notes. Don't miss out on a conversation that could change the way you see this conflict. Okay, now let's get back to my conversation with Professor Halidi. They were, they, 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 they actually were losing their position in mm. Palestine and they were not happy about it. Um, uh, partly because of, 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 the, of, of the, the fact that the Zionist movement turned against them and through a series of terrorist incidents, the bombing of the British headquarters, the King David Hotel, attacks on British uh, infrastructure, attacks on British troops and police and so forth, um, they, they put the British in an impossible position. They alienated the Arabs and now they've alienated the Zionists. They threw it over to the UN and they washed their hands of it. And the Soviets and the Americans immediately moved in and aligned with one another in an early phase of the Cold War, when they're at odds over Greece and they're at odds over Berlin and they're at odds over many other things, they're in agreement on Palestine. <laughs> that only lasts for a while. Uh, by the 1950s, Israel has de- developed relations not just with France, but also with Britain again. And most of the armament that Brit- Israel uses in the f- 1956 Suez War and in the 1967 June War is British and French only. Mystères and later Mirages, uh, fighters, uh, AMX-13 tanks, Centurion tanks, uh, and so on. Um, and uh, uh, so during, during the Anglo-Franco-Israeli attack on Egypt in 1956, the two superpowers, in the midst of a, of a ferocious dispute over Hungary, where the Soviets have just invaded mm-hmm. to put down a revolt against their puppet regime, um, the United States and the Soviet Union find themselves in alignment once again, this time in support of Egypt and against Israel. Hmm. So you have these shifting, uh, uh, these shifting alliances of the powers, Britain and France. Uh, Britain had, was not really in favor of the creation of Israel in 1947 and voted, did not vote for partition. Uh, the United States and the Soviet Union were. Hmm. Uh, and yet what you find out by 1956 is the British and the French are, 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 are aligned with it yeah. by the Treaty of Sabra. Uh, they, they create a they create a, a, a cover for the intervention of the British and the French in their invasion of the Suez Canal Zone, uh, and and the United States and the Soviet Union push them back. Things change again. The Soviets have by this time become the main arms suppliers of several Arab countries, especially Egypt and Syria. During and at the height of the Cold War, these become client states of the Soviet Union, and Israel shifts into the orbit of the United States. So that by the time of the 67 war, uh, Israel is already receiving weapons from the United States. They're receiving Hawk anti-aircraft missiles. They're receiving uh, uh, A-4 Skyhawk bombers from the United States. And after the war, after the 67 war, they, they received the top of the line American fighter bomber, the, the F-4 Phantom. Mm. Um, and so Israel becomes a, a major client of the United States in the Middle East. Egypt and Syria have already been for quite a while major clients. And so the Arab-Israeli conflict between the Arab states and Israel comes to align itself with the with the Cold War, with the several of the Arab states on the on the uh, Western American side and and several uh, 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 sorry several of the Arab states on the Soviet side and Israel and other countries in the Middle East on the American side. There's something so wonderful about talking to a historian who's able to then weave <laughs> the, the geopolitical, so not just regional, but the geopolitical uh, dimensions. But th- thank you for that. I, I've thoroughly enjoyed that, and you painted a wonderful picture in my mind. 
what makes and you meant you made you, you said the phrase brilliant diplomacy what made Israeli diplomacy brilliant as opposed to Palestinian diplomacy who arguably right. uh, you know and we're talking about uh, you know the, the, the age of decolonization uh, you know nations are right. gaining independence around the world right what what was different and why in the in the in the in the approach to the superpowers from the two sides well, one thing that has to be kept in mind is that starting in 1948, Israel is a nation state. Member, and after a couple of years later, a member of the United Nations. So it has international diplomatic status, which the Palestinians never yeah. did. And to this day, don't yeah. believe Palestinians have been denied self-determination systematically from the Balfour Declaration until today. Yeah. That's one of the reasons I call this a hundred years. Yeah. Yeah. It's a war on Palestine, but it's also a war on the Palestinians' right to represent themselves. The second factor is Zionism is not a Middle Eastern phenomenon. It's an Eastern European Jewish phenomenon at its, at its origins. It starts with Europeans. It starts with people who are living at the heart of European societies. Theodore Herzl is an Austrian. He is a Viennese. His, his first language is German. Uh, Austrian German, uh, but German. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and one can go from individual. Golda Meir grows up in Milwaukee. She, she, she was born in, in Eastern Europe. She lived through pogroms, but she came to the United States as a young woman. If you ever listened to her, I once heard her speak. She spoke perfect American. You had people brought up in Russia whose native language was Russian. You had people brought up in Germany whose native language was German. And they didn't just speak the languages. They were from and understood the cultures, the political systems of the countries they came from. The fears. So we <laughs> talk about Chaim Weizmann, who's a British subject, and a chemist who's making a major contribution to the war effort during World War One, you're talking about someone who is talking as a peer to Lloyd George. He's talking as a peer to, to Churchill or to Balfour. He's not talking to them as some supplicant from a third world country, a, a native, a dark, a darkie or whatever. Who barely speaks the language and is heavily accented. He's one of them. Yeah, yeah. He's one of us. And that's true of, uh, you know, Abba Iban. His father is the chief rabbi of South Africa. Uh, Chaim, Chaim Herzog. His father is the chief rabbi of Dublin. These are people who come from Irish society, come from British colonial societies, come from whatever European or American uh, milieu you're talking about. We're talking about this first and second generation mm -hmm. of Zionist and Israeli leaders. And so, of course, they spoke the language, and of course, they understood the politics. And the, the other thing that has to be said is that they understood from a very early age, from a very early stage, of the Zionist project, that they could not do what they needed to do without external support. Herzl wears himself out going from capital to capital to obtain the support of the Ottoman Sultan or of the German Kaiser. He meets the Kaiser in Palestine or of the French parliament. Weizmann finally succeeds with the British. During World War II uh, and before World War II, Ben-Gurion, and Yitzhak Ben-Zvi are working on the United States. They understand that without this external support, the settler colonial project can never, never succeed. Uh, 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 another, another important Zionist leader, Zev Jabotinsky, says, without an iron wall, which has to be provided from outside, this project cannot succeed. We need those guns and bayonets, is what he's saying. Mm. They understood this. And they, they therefore had a sort of global perspective on the struggle that they were entering into from the very beginning. Zionism succeeds in London before it succeeds on the ground in Palestine. 
It succeeds in New York with the Biltmore Declaration of 1942 before it succeeds in Palestine. And it does not succeed in Palestine without what they do in New York, without the money that they raise in the United States. You, you, I, you can't, your, yeah. your listeners won't be able to see it. This is a, a, a Jewish national fund, a, a, a collection box into which people were just putting pennies and nickels and dimes in the United States. Yeah. Um, a friend of mine found it in the basement of his house. It says, redeem the land of Israel, uh, uh, contribute to the Jewish National Fund, and it has language in Hebrew yeah. and, a, and a fist inside the Star of David on one side and the same logo, yeah. and, and National Headquarters, 41 East 42nd Street. This is, Zionism is this plus settlers, plus a military, plus you know, the, the nation-building ethos, plus the ideology. It's money and diplomatic support from abroad without which the project doesn't work. Mm. Did not and does not in the 21st century. Um, so they understood this. I don't think Palestinians had that same kind of access. Mm. How many of them spoke perfect English? How many of them went to Western universities? When we're talking about the 20s or the 30s or the 40s or the 50s or the 60s or the 70s. I mean, I've dealt with members of the Palestinian leadership in the 60s and the 70s, I can I can tell you that they had some kind of understanding of the third world, of the global south. They had some kind of understanding of some parts of Europe. They had an understanding of what was then the Eastern Bloc, the Soviet Union mm -hmm. and, and its satellites. Their understanding of the West generally, however, and of the United States was almost nil yeah. or extremely limited. And if they had, they thought, well, if I speak to uh, uh, Secretary of State Schultz, I will achieve a breakthrough. No, no, no. It wasn't just Weizmann speaking to Balfour. It was the political and organizational and financial organization over many, many decades, starting in the 1780s and through the first and second and third Zionist Congresses in the 1890s. That Weizmann. If you'd like to hear the rest of this episode and gain access to all of the episodes of The Voices of War, simply become a subscriber using the link in the show notes. As you know, I will not feature any ads on the show, which is made possible solely through the support of our subscribers. If you find value in the content, you can become one now.